Hello and welcome to this Eye on Education podcast from Friday the 7th of July. I'm Jennifer Crichton and I was in the hot seat for the final education show of the academic year. And as schools break for summer, we were talking exams. Because thousands of youngsters got their results this week and thousands more are facing a long wait over the summer. I was joined by psychologist Kieran Hillier to ask what does all this uncertainty mean for our teens' well-being and how can we help them enjoy an anxiety-free summer, whether they're awaiting results or awaiting a move to university? We also took a look at all of the latest headlines from the world of education, including a story from the Netherlands where phones and smartwatches are being banned in schools to prevent distraction in the classroom. We asked education expert Professor Neil Selwyn whether other nations should follow suit. I was also joined by David Cagney, Operations Manager of Cognita in Richme, to discuss how we can keep our kids engaged, educated and healthy over those long summer holidays. He also had some top tips on screen use and how we can keep it limited and balanced throughout the hotter days. And I was joined by journalist and editor Kaya Scott to discuss everything you want to know about family days out and deals to be had in the UAE over the summer. And finally, I was joined by Kyra Anand, a 13-year-old student from Dubai who was this week awarded the prestigious Diana Award for her work teaching girls across the UAE and India to code. She was an inspiration. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Thousands of kids across the UAE received their exam results this week and we're talking about kids in the US and IB systems. But for many thousands more, the wait for that all-important envelope still has some weeks to go, with A-levels and GCSEs, for example, not expected until mid and late August, respectively. And if that wasn't anxiety-inducing enough, there's then the potential for results that aren't as expected and whether those grades turn out to be better or worse, the impact on university choices can be notable. And of course, there's also the idea of university and all that comes with it. Often, of course, for teens here in the UAE, an international move as well as the usual challenges of transition. It's a complex and nerve-wracking picture and the result for many kids can be a summer spent fretting rather than having fun. But what can parents do to help their kids maintain their well-being during a summer with so much at stake? Well, to seek advice earlier, I sat down with Dr. Kieran Hillier, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Harriet Watt University, Dubai, and a psychologist at Dubai's Open Minds Centre. And I began by asking her how we can expect kids who have already received their results to be feeling today. I guess that would depend entirely on whether their results were better than what they expected, in which case I imagine they'll be feeling quite elated and um, very pleasantly surprised and therefore having to reevaluate, okay, what are my new set of options? So there would still be some stress around, oh, I need to rethink this and maybe go over other options. Whereas it is part of the students whose results are not what they expected it to be. There's going to be disappointment, fear, particularly around potentially the response from parents. That's certainly the concern that I hear from the teen clients that I work with, that there's a fear that they are going to disappoint or upset 
their parents, particularly around discussions regarding the monetary investment that parents might have made into school or additional tutoring and that type of thing. So it can put a lot of pressure on students to feel like to some degree, the love and acceptance of their parents is dependent on their academic performance. And so I would always encourage parents to be very mindful about how they might be communicating with their kids in an effort to encourage and motivate them to want to perform to their best potential might be putting undue pressure and can mean students are really quite scared about having a discussion with parents if um, they didn't get the results that they want differently. So we certainly want to validate students emotions because that response can be very very intense um, and all of that is very valid. And of course that all applies to those kids who got their results yesterday but thousands of teenagers are going to be waiting for much of the summer for those results and that itself can have a huge psychological impact. How can parents who are seeing their teens kind of approach that day with with anxiety help them still enjoy their summer when they've got that looming over them. Right, yes. And that is something else that I hear from students, that there's a concern that they will not be able to enjoy the summer break because they have this impending announcement looming over them. So first up is, as I mentioned before, validating what it is that they're feeling. So not dismissing that or minimising it understanding and demonstrating that empathy that, yeah, I can imagine this would be really stressful. You know, this is a big event in your life and this information is going to determine a lot of next steps for you. So I totally make sense that you would want to get that news as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, given the nature of how these processes work, it's going to take a little while longer. And so that can involve giving the students that space to talk it out. So creating that sense of safety for students is going to be important. Other times it might be giving students the chance to process that on their own. So we might get someone to do journaling or I have a number of clients who will do voice messages to themselves because they just feel like that's an easier process or a better way for them to express themselves if they're doing it verbally rather than trying to write it down. Another one was recognizing that this is in the past. So you've done as much as you can. You know, the exams are over. Anything you do now is not going to change the outcome. So accepting the fact that it is behind you, your feelings are valid and you're entitled to have them, but worrying about it and constantly having it on your mind is not going to change the situation. It's not going to improve the grade. It's not going to bring about a particular grade that you want. That's already been done. So instead, it's how do we keep them distracted and engaged in other activities that provide an outlet in terms of a way to get rid of that pent up stress in their body. So whether that's exercise or physical activity or other types of activities that allow them to exert that energy into something more productive, but also give them a sense of control because students really feel out of control in these situations that I'm now at the mercy of the marker, basically. And so we want to reiterate that sense of control in terms of the types of activities that they're doing, how they're structuring their day, but creating a sense where, okay, there's this element I don't have control over now. I've done as much as I can. And now I just wait, reminding them that there's all of these other things that I do have control over. And that's a better way for me to focus my energy. 
And of course, many of these students, whether they got exam results yesterday or they're going to be waiting for them, a lot of them will also be looking ahead to going to university this year and potentially leaving home, moving to a new country. There's all sorts of things that they could potentially be contending with mentally in the run up to that. How do we help them feel prepared and organized for that transition in their lives, which for many of these kids is is going to be a huge moment. So what I like to do with the students that I'm working with is try to break it down because it can be, oh, there's this big gargantuan thing, which is starting university overseas. And that in and of itself can sound really intimidating. So instead, it's sort of, okay, in order for that to happen, let's break that down step by step in regards to what needs to happen first. So breaking it down step by step for students is important. And then asking them of all of these different things, what are the things that get you most worried? Because for one student, it might be, what if I don't like my roommate? And then you focus on that. Whereas for another student, it might be, I'm gonna be living on my own and I've never done that before. Or I'm gonna be cooking and I've never cooked meals for myself. So I have a client where we're actually getting her to practice learning some recipes from her grandmother so she feels more confident in her ability to eat well and to budget appropriately because she's not always eating out. So it's also, not making assumptions as parents as to, oh, that must be what's stressing you out, the academic challenge. It might be, no, it's the social side of university that I'm getting quite nervous about or the actual physical process of traveling or adapting to a new climate. Those are the things that are worrying me. And as parents, there's sort of tendency towards assumption, but also an overwhelming feeling sometimes that you want to be able to help and that that could sometimes perhaps come across as overbearing. For parents who are worried that they see their teens getting anxious or being a bit subdued this summer, how can they ensure that they're encouraging their teens to speak up without interfering or making them shut down effectively? I mean, certainly the research suggests that the best thing that parents can do is just to be reiterating that they are there um, whenever it is that their child wants to talk about things and that they will be supportive in that conversation so that they're not going to be judgmental or critical, that they will support their child as much as they can in that. So always trying to offer things as suggestions and giving kids that sense of choice over how they want this conversation to go. Because again, that's going to stop us from making assumptions as to, oh, I want me to tell them what to do, or I have to make them feel better. Because it's also parents being okay with seeing their kids in a state of discomfort, because it is very normal for kids to be feeling stressed or anxious about such a big change in their life. It would be almost stranger for a student to not have any anxiety or stress about such a big life transition. But it's part of learning how to function optimally um, from a psychological and a mental and emotional perspective is being able to give kids the opportunity to process those emotions themselves and to understand that, yeah, this is scary, but I can still get through it. I have the competencies and the strengths um, and the resources and the support that I can do this. 
Dr. Kiran Hillier there, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Harriet Watt University, Dubai, and a psychologist at Dubai's Open Minds Centre on how we can help our teens through this uncertain time, whether they're waiting for exam results or getting ready to go to university. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to Eye on Education on the Agenda. I'm Jennifer Crichton and I'm keeping you company today here on Dubai Eye 103.8. And we're taking a look now at a news story from the Netherlands because Officials there have said they are going to ban mobile phones and smartwatches from classrooms in a bid to stop tech disrupting lessons. According to the Dutch government, mobiles, tablets and smartwatches are getting in the way of student learning and will not be allowed in class from next year. The move follows on from a number of other countries introducing similar bans and a host of others are considering similar moves. But does it really make a difference? To weigh up the pros and cons, I'm joined now by Professor Neil Selwyn, Distinguished Research Professor at Monash University in Melbourne. Professor Selwyn, good afternoon and thank you for joining us. How are you? Lovely to be with you. Wonderful is exactly what we're looking for. So this ban in the Netherlands, from a parenting point of view, it seems like a sensible policy. Is it? Absolutely. I mean, parents are right behind these sorts of bans. We did a survey a few years ago before one of the bans in Australia. We found 80% of adults supported a ban on phones in classrooms. It's very popular with teachers. It's very popular with politicians. But I'm a bit concerned it's not necessarily very good for students and learning. And why would that be? If it's popular with teachers, it's popular with parents. Why would I, I can understand why kids wouldn't like it, but why do you think it might not be advisable? Well, it's, it's complex. I mean, phones are definitely um, a distraction in the classroom. They can definitely distract kids from learning and they can be a bit of a nightmare in terms of classroom management. But most schools are coping fine on their own. Most teachers are coping fine with a bit of discretion, being able to use phones when they're educationally appropriate and then telling students not to use them when they're not. So it's not necessarily that I think phones should be in classrooms all the time, but I think teachers should have discretion when to use them. And we should perhaps trust students a little bit more to make the right choices. So do you think it's it's almost preventing, I guess, children or teenagers at an age where they are getting increasing amounts of responsibility and independence from being able to utilise that in a good way and perhaps learn how to take some responsibility for their own use of tech? Absolutely. I mean, you had an advert previously for a school that was talking about preparing future ready young people. And schools are meant to be where we prepare students for for the world of work, for example. And we use our mobile phones at work all the time. In terms of developing citizens, I mean, schools are a great place to learn how to use phones responsibly. And as I said, phones can be used for educational purposes. So to have them in the classroom and to get students to get them out when appropriate, I think is, is a really good thing. So it's about giving schools choice. To be fair to the Dutch policy that you ran at the beginning of the story, it seems to be a little more sensible than most. They are saying that phones can be allowed for specific reasons, including digital literacy or for medical reasons. So, I mean, that's not as bad as some. But the idea is of a blanket ban across a whole school system, I think, is a little bit over the top. We should trust schools, we should trust students, we should trust teachers to work things out for themselves where appropriate. And of course, when we do research into the idea of bans like this, when we ask parents or kids, how do you feel about this potential policy. The results can be a bit arbitrary. We'll have a knee-jerk reaction. In reality, in 
areas where we have seen these bans implemented, how have they actually been received? How have we seen them working? What Have there been any sort of unexpected consequences? Uh, well, there's a couple of things to say there. There is no research evidence that these work or don't work. I mean, I can point you to large scale studies that show there's no impact of a phone ban at all. But there are smaller scale studies which show that, yes, it does allow students to work better. It's interesting how they're actually being enacted in practice. And I think this is crucial. It, we've had phone bans here in Australia for a few years in my particular state. Phones are still being used. Students are still bringing in phones. And we're finding in some schools, teachers are turning a blind eye. There was a mobile phone ban in New York City for 11 years. And they basically pulled it in 2016. And one of the main reasons was they found that middle class, well-resourced schools were tending to turn a blind eye. And lower, cla uh, lower class schools with, uh, were being more punitive. And it was actually disadvantaging some classes of students. And it's the same in Australia. We have government schools have a ban. Independent private schools don't. And because of the educational benefits of these technologies, in some ways, it's disadvantaging students. So there's no real evidence they work. There's no real evidence that they need to be there. And when they are enforced, as with everything, students find a way around it. And often teachers will, will turn a blind eye. Amazing stuff and absolutely fascinating. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Do your kids take a phone to school? Would you like them to or would you like to see a ban like this imposed here in the UAE? Do let me know on the texts on 4001. That was Professor Neil Selwyn there, Distinguished Research Professor in the Faculty of Education at Monash University, Melbourne. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to Eye on Education. And today we're taking a look at exams as thousands of students across the UAE received those all-important results this week. First up, earlier this week, it was the turn of youngsters studying in the US curriculum. While yesterday it was the International baccalaureate sending out those all-important envelopes. According to the IBO, almost 180,000 students worldwide received their diploma or career programme results yesterday, with the average DP score globally coming out this year at 30.24 out of 45. Of course, the nature of results day is that while some kids will be delighted, others might be disappointed. And in both cases, there are options. To discuss that picture in more detail, earlier I was joined by Varan Jain, founder and CEO of Unihawk, and one of his mentees, Sid Tandon, an IB diploma student here in Dubai, who I think it's safe to say was rather pleased with his results. Because not only did Sid get a perfect score of 45, he also took an extra class and got full marks there too, taking his total score to 52, something I didn't even know was possible, if I'm honest. So obviously, I began by asking Sid how he was feeling. To be honest, it's it's quite unreal. I, I don't know how to feel just yet. <laughs> um, I wasn't, uh, I mean, obviously, it's hard to expect a perfect score. You never expect that of yourself. So when I opened the envelope and I saw the grade, I think I was... For a, for a few hours, I didn't know what to do. It wasn't until like later in the day, I was like, okay, you know, this is a great feeling. I'm enjoying it. It's nice. All the hard work has finally paid off. So, I mean, it's safe to say I'm on cloud nine for, <laughs> I'm going to be on cloud nine for quite a while now. Now, I would imagine that you will have quite a number of university offers. What does this mean for your future and where are you going to study? Um, initially, I was pretty geared to go to the US for my further education. Um, but we kind of made a pivot 
in the middle of the process and I'll be now attending Oxford University to study economics and management for the next three years. So that is going to be my plan after this. And I'm pretty excited to start. October term starts. So pretty excited to get the ground running on that. And why the pivot? What affected your decision making? I think it was a few things. I think obviously there are a few advantages to the UK. One, you finish in three years instead of four in the US. And, um, you know, not to kind of toot my own horn here, but economics and management at Oxford is the most selective course at Oxford. And I felt like that carried a bit more pull than maybe, um, you know, something else at a equally selective university that maybe isn't as selective of a course. Now, Varun, you've been working with Sid for a few years now, helping him prepare for this stage in his life. Tell me, first of all, just how unusual is the level of success he's reached here? How often do you see it at Unihawk? Uh, well, you know, I would like to congratulate each and every student, those 180,000 students and their families for completing the IB diploma or the you know career programs. It is very, very difficult. And I'd say each and every child uh, grows in this journey. Well, uh, congratulations, Sid. 52 is insane. Definitely insane. (laughs) Uh, I probably get to work with maybe two or three students every year who actually end up taking seven subjects and maybe one or two who end up getting a perfect score of 45 on 45 in IB. Yeah. So it is very, very special and exceptional. Yeah. And so what sort of work have you been doing with Sid and the other kids that you work with to help them prepare for this sort of transition stage in life and for making what are some pretty huge decisions at a young age? That's right. You know, it's uh, I keep focusing always on finding the right fit, right fit, not just in terms of the program, university, also in terms of choosing the subjects, in terms of designing your own, uh, you know, subject choices when you're pursuing, whether it's MYP, whether it's IB diploma or A-levels for that matter. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to also add that yesterday, uh, advanced placements, AP results also came out, which is actually the American College Board exam, which was also a big deal. So a lot of kids who are in American schools, their results also came out. Uh, And Sid also actually took about four APs when uh, he was in year 11 or 12, right? So I started working, uh, you know, with Sid uh, about three years ago when he was in his MYPs. Uh, You know, it was about deciding when to do what. So a lot of kids actually end up taking their SATs when they're in, I I would say, grade 11, IBDP1, uh, or even when they enter DP2. But he, he actually completed his SATs when he was uh, fit, before finishing his MYPs, yeah. actually. And then he ended up taking additional APs. He really was interested in studying economics, but he uh, had his own startup, so he wanted to learn about business. So that's when he decided to take his seventh subject. So, yes, it was... Uh, It was all about finding the right fit for him. So that's how uh, actually the journey has been for the past three years. And congratulations, man. Uh, Good job. (laughs) Good job, Scott, to be a bit of an understatement there. And I mean, there will be kids today who are delighted with their results. There will be kids who are disappointed. And on that subject of finding the right fit, you know, so much reading and planning can go into trying to decide where you want to go. And it can all rest on today. What is the advice for people whose results are in whichever direction, not necessarily as they expected? What can they do today at this potentially fairly late stage in the day? So when I started, I actually congratulated those 179,000 plus students and their families. And I think that's what they should do to themselves. You completed the diploma, whether, you know, you 
passed it or you didn't get the scores that you wanted, it's okay. As I said, there was a right fit again. Um, so if you did not meet the conditions that were written in your offer letter by, say, Warwick or King's College London or, uh, you know, Oxbridge, it's okay. There is another university which actually you can apply to. So there is a clearing process that actually UCAS has uh, whereby, you know, they can apply to other universities, other programs. Uh, those who could not even complete the diploma, they can apply to a lot of foundation programs uh, as well. So I think uh, there is always uh, a way for a student and a family uh, to move forward from here. Uh, if you wanted to go to the UK and if you're not able to uh, and if you don't want to go for a foundation program, there are a lot of programs even in Dubai now. A lot of internationally recognized universities are here which actually offer foundation programs in Dubai. And after finishing that foundation, you can actually apply to universities in the UK or the US or Canada. Uh, at the same time, uh, there's a chance for you to even repeat uh, some of the subjects in which you did not do well. So again, pick the option that uh, best suits you. Uh, and, and move on. But yes, hey, you're probably disappointed because you worked really hard. Uh, but don't give up. Uh, there is definitely uh, an awesome path ahead. And what about kids who've done better than expected, who maybe thought that they'd, they'd settled on their decision and then they've got a score today that's kind of blown them out of the water a bit? Do they still have the option to change their minds? Uh, well, those who have done better uh, and they actually applied to universities that were probably... Uh, uh, lower than uh, where they actually wanted to go to, there is still a chance for you to actually apply to those universities, especially in the UK. Uh, there is a way where actually you can apply to universities uh, which are better than the offers that you have. Uh, in addition to that, especially for the US and Canada, I've seen a lot of students taking gap year. There are a lot of advantages of taking actually gap year as well. Uh, you know, if you and I go back, I don't think we have stopped working since we graduated from college. So I think <laughs> I would definitely recommend students and families to consider gap years. I think even Sid and I were talking about it because he has some awesome ideas that he want to execute, wants to start his own business. I know a kid who took a gap year a couple of years ago and currently runs a billion dollar company. So in this gap year, they can travel, they can reapply to universities. Uh, and actually, uh, for that matter, a kid last year who actually got a perfect IB score ended up taking a gap year and reapplied to universities and will be joining um, uh, you know, this uh, fall. So wow. that's another option. Yeah. And I've got, I've literally got, I'm over time, so I'm going to get into trouble. But Sid, I've got to ask, leave the last word with you. What's the dream? I mean, I'm hearing these big plans. What's the, the big dream? What will we be seeing you doing 10 years from now? Oh, wow, that's a big question. I uh, <laughs> wasn't prepared for that. Um, I think for me, uh, I think this is for every, I guess, kid who's grown up in this generation. They've just seen the power that... Um, inspiration has on other people like just being a public figure you inspire so many other students I mean I can think of so many people who I just see on Instagram like oh you know I want to be like that guy and because of that I've pushed myself to get to that point so I think just leading by example and being a good human being I think is the biggest thing I, I feel like it's very easy to learn how to get a 45 or a 52 it's not very easy to learn how to be a decent person so I think for me if I want people could remember one thing about me. It shouldn't be my score or my university or, you know, my net worth or whatever. It should be that, you know, this guy is someone who could treat others with respect and with dignity. And I think that is what everyone else, I think, aspires to as well. It's not unique to just me. 
I love Sid's idea there that everyone aspires to giving an answer as eloquent and optimistic as that. He's some young man. That's Sid Tandon there who's off to Oxford University after receiving a perfect score in his IB diploma. Joined there by his mentor, Varun Jain, the founder and CEO of Unihog. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to Eye on Education on the Agenda. I'm Jennifer Crichton and I'm keeping you company today here on Dubai Eye 103.8. And we're taking a look now at a news story from the Netherlands because officials there have said they are going to ban mobile phones and smartwatches from classrooms in a bid to stop tech disrupting lessons. According to the Dutch government, mobiles, tablets and smartwatches are getting in the way of student learning and will not be allowed in class from next year. The move follows on from a number of other countries introducing similar bans and a host of others are considering similar moves. But does it really make a difference? To weigh up the pros and cons, I'm joined now by Professor Neil Selwyn, Distinguished Research Professor at Monash University in Melbourne. Professor Selwyn, good afternoon and thank you for joining us. How are you? Lovely to be with you. Wonderful is exactly what we're looking for. So this ban in the Netherlands, from a parenting point of view, it seems like a sensible policy. Is it? Absolutely. I mean, parents are right behind these sorts of bans. We did a survey a few years ago before one of the bans in Australia. We found 80% of adults supported a ban on phones in classrooms. It's very popular with teachers. It's very popular with politicians. But I'm a bit concerned it's not necessarily very good for students and learning. And why would that be? If it's popular with teachers, it's possible popular with parents. Why would I, I can understand why kids wouldn't like it. But why do you think it might not be advisable? It's it's complex. I mean, phones are definitely um, a distraction in the classroom. They can definitely distract kids from learning and they can be a bit of a nightmare in terms of classroom management. But most schools are coping fine on their own. Most teachers are coping fine with a bit of discretion, being able to use phones when they're educationally appropriate and then telling students not to use them when they're not. So it's not necessarily that I think phones should be in classrooms all the time, but I think teachers should have discretion when to use them. And we should perhaps trust students a little bit more to make the right choices. So do you think it's it's almost preventing, I guess, children or teenagers at an age where they are getting increasing amounts of responsibility and independence from being able to utilise that in a good way and perhaps learn how to take some responsibility for their own use of tech? Absolutely. I mean, you had an advert previously for a school that was talking about preparing future ready young people. And schools are meant to be where we prepare students for for the world of work, for example. And we use our mobile phones at work all the time. In terms of developing citizens, I mean, schools are a great place to learn how to use phones responsibly. And as I said, phones can be used for educational purposes. So to have them in the classroom and to get students to get them out when appropriate, I think is, is a really good thing. So it's about giving schools choice. To be fair to the Dutch policy that you ran at the beginning of the story, it seems to be a little more sensible than most. They are saying that phones can be allowed for specific reasons, including digital literacy or for medical reasons. So, I mean, that's not as bad as some. But the idea is of a blanket ban across a whole school system, I think, is a little bit over the top. We should trust schools. We should trust students. We should trust teachers to work things out for themselves where appropriate. And of course, when we do research into the idea of banlands like this, when we ask parents or kids, how do you feel about this potential policy. The results can be a bit arbitrary. We'll have a knee-jerk reaction. In reality, in 
areas where we have seen these bans implemented, how have they actually been received? How have we seen them working? What Have there been any sort of unexpected consequences? Uh, well, there's a couple of things to say there. There is no research evidence that these work or don't work. I mean, I can point you to large scale studies that show there's no impact of a phone ban at all. But there are smaller scale studies which show that, yes, it does allow students to work better. It's interesting how they're actually being enacted in practice. And I think this is crucial. It, we've had phone bans here in Australia for a few years in my particular state. Phones are still being used. Students are still bringing in phones. And we're finding in some schools, teachers are turning a blind eye. There was a mobile phone ban in New York City for 11 years. And they basically pulled it in 2016. And one of the main reasons was they found that middle class, well-resourced schools were tending to turn a blind eye. And lower, cla uh, lower class schools with, uh, were being more punitive. And it was actually disadvantaging some classes of students. And it's the same in Australia. We have government schools have a ban. Independent private schools don't. And because of the educational benefits of these technologies, in some ways, it's disadvantaging students. So there's no real evidence they work. There's no real evidence that they need to be there. And when they are enforced, as with everything, students find a way around it. And often teachers will, will turn a blind eye. Amazing stuff and absolutely fascinating. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Do your kids take a phone to school? Would you like them to or would you like to see a ban like this imposed here in the UAE? Do let me know on the texts on 4001. That was Professor Neil Selwyn there, Distinguished Research Professor in the Faculty of Education at Monash University, Melbourne. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Good afternoon and welcome back to Eye on Education on the Agenda. And in the last hour, we were focusing primarily on older kids, those at the exams and university entry end of the education spectrum. But of course, for tens of thousands of younger kids across the UAE, this week is less about an anxious wait and more about getting really rather excited indeed. <laughs> Yep, it's time to get D-Mob happy with seven long weeks of freedom stretching out in front of our kids. Of course, for some, that means escaping the city heat and heading to cooler climes. Indeed, if the quieter roads are to be believed, many families have already done just that. For many others, though, and I'm including myself here, work and life mean a seven-week getaway just isn't possible. And from a lack of childcare to warnings about the so-called summer slide, yes, that's the horrifying idea that your kids could regress educationally over the summer, the pressure is on parents now to make sure that summer counts. So how important are the holidays and in what way? And what should we be doing to ensure our kids are remaining active, engaged, happy and healthy? Well, to explore that very topic, I'm delighted to be joined now by David Cagney, Operations Manager at Cognita Enrich Me. David, good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning, Jennifer. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So first of all, I'd like to ask you, I guess in a developmental sense, how important are the school holidays? I think from a development point of view, it's great for the kids to have a bit of respite. Like everybody, they need, they've worked very hard through the school year. The schools here are very, very busy. So to get that chance to rest, recuperate, rejuvenate and kind of spend some family time is really important, especially from a social development point of view where they can... Um, explore different things, meet new people, kind of travel if they are traveling. So yeah, there's lots of opportunities in the holidays to give them that. 
And I mean, if they're not travelling, if they're here in the UAE, I think many of us who are working worry that the temptation to let them spend too much time on screens is very, very real. You know, they're, they're inside. It's very, very hot. How... How much could we kind of overdo it with screen time and and how much responsibility do we really have to make sure that that is not the case? Yeah, I think the key to everything is balance. Um, I think there's a balance of letting the kids relax, as we've mentioned before, but then it's making sure that there is that opportunity to keep active both physically and mentally. Now, that's tough in Dubai when it's so hot, but there is opportunities out there and if to explore, for example, there's swimming pools are a great place to go into and cool down. Um, you've got camps that are in the schools and these things are kind of great um, chances for the kids, again, to meet new people, to keep physically active, um, to keep mentally active as well. So when they're kind of meeting new people and exploring those social development skills, it's great. And that, those are things that we would like the kids to try and get is that balance. Now, for better or worse, it is a a long break. It's seven weeks or so for most of us. What should our parental priorities be? Should it be about relaxation or should we really have sort of enrichment, for want of a better term, in mind? Yeah, I think, look, it's really important. I am... If you think about it somewhere in different parts toward you might want to relax to begin with but then towards when you're getting ready for school in that kind of august time it's really vital that you give the kids the best chance to start the year um, ready now as an example for if you are wanting to be part of the swim squads you know that trials are going to be um the first few weeks of school now if you've not swum for seven weeks then it really is going to be quite difficult to perform at your best so you might think about relaxing but then start your training your pre-season towards the um the latter stages of the summer and then making sure they get ready and get used to those early mornings again now i know that if i was to ask my little boy to practice swimming or to practice football ahead of trials that that's not going to be too challenging for me to convince him to join in but when it comes to things like reading or art or things that he doesn't instinctively necessarily do as readily i think there's there's a sense of sort of dread or responsibility from parents sometimes about forcing them to do those things There's been a lot of reports recently about this idea of summer slide. How much can our kids regress if we don't keep on top of things like reading, writing, art over the summer? I think you can, of course, not um, progress if if you're not doing it. So there can definitely be a kind of plateau of their learning and, and their progression. And for some children, they need to have a regular, consistent kind of things. And um, so it is important over the summer not to just switch off completely and get that balance of learning. And if it can be done in a fun way, so if you are going on a staycation, if you're not travelling, for example, can they learn about the history of where they're going and then start to read about that and use the kind of things that you are doing to, I suppose, allow the children to have a chance again to read and try and read through a different purpose of not having to sit down and do it as homework as opposed to as a game or something to explore, particularly the younger ones, or a challenge and challenging their friends and asking them to kind of who can read the most books or the most pages or a challenge against their siblings. I know when I was younger, I have four brothers. So if we were competitive in anything, <laughs> then we would have we would have done anything to try and win, including reading books. So gamify it. <laughs> I gamify it and make it as fun as possible. I think uh, 
I think that's where you can get the opportunity to go into camps. So, for example, we've got Enrich Me swimming going on and towards August. Um, they can go a chance to go in there. But on top of that, we could ask the coaches to give them some stuff to read about nutrition so that you can get that fun and it all links into what they're doing. And it can be competitive or it can be a game where they can be friends with it and they'll get a prize where they get to go to go out for a, an ice cream at the end of the, end of the summer. Just things like that can really, really help motivate the children um, because they get that in school when they're with their classmates that they've got to try and be the maybe it's the star of the week they're chasing or something along those lines and that motivation is really really helpful and it can be internal or it can be external and if you do manage to motivate them to read does it actually matter what they read or is all reading good look i think all reading is good if, if you look at it broadly but trying to find books that are appropriate to the children and what they are learning so that they have the right context in there and, and the words are in there that are not off-putting or too big to read is really key. So making sure that the books are age-specific is is vital um, so that the kids are really learning the, the correct pronunciation, the right um, terminology of what they're trying to uh, learn in school will really help them. What about writing? I know my little boy is nine and I know that this year handwriting and and pencil control has been a real sort of area of focus in his class moving on to sort of having pen licenses and all that sort of stuff yes how much is that going to get considerably worse if i don't keep on it over the summer i I don't think it's going to get considerably worse but it will not progress is what i think is the base it's it can have an opportunity to go back but they'll quickly pick it up to where the point of where they are right now so i think i wouldn't be considerably worried that they're going to drop significant amounts, let's say 50%. I don't think that will happen, but 5 or 10% is definitely real. But if you're able to do a little bit, then they're starting again where they're at at the moment or hopefully progressing a little bit further. So yeah, writing again, I've seen some fantastic apps where they use an iPad pen and they can write on there and they can colour it in and things like that. And those sorts of games keep them moving which would be fantastic we have a couple of questions coming in on the text which are i have to say quite technology focused and we have been talking about whether we should be keeping our kids off screens whether there's a balance to be found and someone is asking in terms of they have a nine-year-old but i guess for all ages whether there are any particularly good sort of educational apps that our kids would enjoy using that can help them kind of keep up to speed with what they've been learning in school while at the same time letting them feel like they're getting a bit of extra screen time and a bit of enjoyment out of it, David? Um, I was mentioning, there's, like I said, there's multitude one, but one that really comes to mind is uh, TT Rockstars. It's a maths game. They do the times tables. It's just very, they do it a lot in schools. It's very competitive, but it's just really, really great for the kids learning those timetables all the way through, and it makes it a lot of fun. And it's just, yeah, a really good example of uh, an app that has that fun, competitive, um, motivational element, but then entwined in all of it is learning. And I mean, on that subject, just before we spoke to you, we were speaking to a professor in Australia who was talking about technology bans in schools. And in the Netherlands, they've just banned smartwatches, telephones, tablets, in a bid to try and prevent distractions in the classroom. And what he was saying was actually a lot of the research suggests that for older kids it can be a bit detrimental, that it's actually a good way for them to learn responsibility if they're allowed to take these things to school but have to use them responsibly. Is there an element of that that we should be applying to our kids' screen use over the summer in terms of letting them take a bit of responsibility for 
for limiting, I guess, or for dealing with it in a healthy way? And what are your top tips for that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting um, topic. And one thing that I think everything in moderation is key, whether that's food, whether that's exercise, whether that's on screen time um, and learning how to um, build that into your daily routine as a child is fantastic. Knowing that you need to get to sleep so that you can perform well at exercise or a game or participate in a sport the next day. Knowing that if you have spent too much time on the screen, that's not going to help you um, pro- progress or develop as much. So I think my top tips would be to kind of, I suppose, having a chart that has a bit of screen time and they record that. So understanding, first of all, how much time we're spending on it for before you make a decision of stopping it. So it could be, OK, how much time have you spent in? On most phones or iPads now, you can see how much usage is done um, and therefore you can go, right, OK, you spent five hours. That's a significant amount of time. If we times that by five days, there's 25. That's a lot of time in one week. Are we going to try and reduce that or how we can do it or limiting the time to an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, an hour in the day after certain things have been done, tidying the room, for example. <laughs> That's just another row. You've got to have a row with them over tidying the room and going about switching their iPad off. And is there a healthy number? You know, is there, should we be saying to kids, well, two hours is is plenty or three hours is plenty? Because I find no matter what number I try and come to, my child will say his friends get more. Yeah. Hold on to your kids for playing that card. It's always good one to use. Um, There's always one kid down the road who gets loads of everything. But um, no, I... (laughs) I think there's not a certain time and I don't think it's, it would be fair to say this is the, the perfect time. I think, as I mentioned, in moderation is key. I think you, if you looked at and broke down a day, if two hours was as a nice time where you've got an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, and in between you've got some time to do reading, writing, in any way you could, how you can how you can put that into their day but um, or exercise, I think that's just finding it's just the key of moderation because every child will have different circumstances. Every child um, will have brothers and sisters in the house and they need to share that the, the screen. So I think two hours as a rule would be nice, but I think it's just as long as it's in moderation, I think it's okay. And in terms of the other stuff that we do over summer, a lot of people will be travelling. And for many expats, of course, travel doesn't necessarily just mean a, a traditional holiday, but often it means time with extended family. Just how important is that for kids that are growing up in often a third culture to be spending time with grandparents, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins? I think it's invaluable, if I'm being honest. I think children knowing how to interact with older people whether that's their grandparents and how they are what they need and what they don't need so and then how they interact with their parents and their aunties and cousins and everything I think you just learn so much from it um the social development that, that can help the children is key but you just talked about there the culture um the culture could be different if they're traveling to a different country and understanding that and knowing that the ways of the world are is not just what it's inside the four walls of the house or what it's like in school and it's making them open their eyes to the world it's just a fantastic thing if you can share with the children and give them that experience because i think it just helps them um as they progress into later life and from a developmental and educational perspective, is sort of all cultural exposure positive? Do we need to worry about giving further sort of educational opportunities to our children in those circumstances or is just exploring and soaking that in enough to be to be getting on with? 
Yeah, I think exploring is enough to begin with, but it's supervised. So it's uh, not send them off into the into the London and going, right, okay, good luck, I'll see you on <laughs> the other side of the tube. But that kind of exposure um, is just, is fa- like I said, it's just fantastic and valuable, but um, supervised is the key word there so that they are, are safe when they're doing that and exploring. But yeah, I do, I think it's... Um, I think all culture and everything they can learn from it. They can learn what not to do and what to do in all circumstances, not to go and annoy the person who looks like he looks um, like he's not up to any good. So yeah, it's just it's just interesting, and I think it's um, important that kids have that exposure. David Cagney there, Operations Manager at Cognita Enrich Me on the ways that we can be helping our kids stay active, engaged and healthy over the summer. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello and welcome back to the Agenda and to Eye on Education, our final one of the academic year. And as we were just hearing, it's important to keep our kids active and engaged over the summer. And so, of course, is making sure that we get some family time. And whether we're working or travelling, the desire to make memories and embark upon fun for all ages of the family is very real, especially if you can find activities that don't involve bankruptcy. But it can be challenging and particularly with the weather being as hot as it is. So I wanted to find out what the best options are for family-friendly activities for those of us who are going to be spending all or part of the holidays here in the UAE this summer. And to answer that, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by something of an expert on the area, journalist and editor Kaya Scott. Kaya, welcome. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm very well, thanks. I've got, not got your microphone up. Let's try that one. Uh, hello. There you uh, are. Here I hello. Am. <laughs> thank you for having microphone. me. Um, I'm very, very well, thank you. So today marks the first day of the school holidays and I can assure you that by the end of the day I will have said get off your device about 50,000 times to my children. So I may be an expert, but it is tricky to keep them busy over it, the summer. The struggle um, with screens is real, isn't it? It, it really is. Um, I think, as your previous guest was saying, I think trying to sort of incentivize them to do something first and earn their screen time? Um, Or sort of, can you go through your school bags and take out all the 5,000 pencils that don't work and and the sort of old mouldy apples and everything you've forgotten about and trying to get them to do jobs so that they actually earn their screen time, earn their fun time is a really good thing to do, as boring as that might sound. I have to say it's a relief to hear you saying that because your Instagram makes it look as though you're never indoors and I sort of look at your feed while I'm having a battle in my own house to get the iPad put away and think why have I never got the good ideas? Oh no, I'm I'm only showing um, the good days, there are plenty <laughs> of bad. But I have, um, I have made a list because we are staying uh, in the UAE for some of the summer unlike other years and I think the important thing to remember is it's it can seem really daunting to be here over the summer But it's actually a really good opportunity to sort of make um, the most of what the UAE offers because you don't have to battle with the crowds and you don't have to battle with all those extra school activities that you that you have to fit into your normal day. So um, and and again, you know, it can seem like everything's very expensive, but there are some amazing offers out there. So um, if you wanted to go down the summer camp route, um, I would say there's something for everyone. There's sort of arts and crafts. 
um, the Yadaway studio in Al-Sakal, in Al-Koz, are doing a sort of pottery thing. If your kids want to get stuck into throwing pots and, and using a wheel, um, then you've got Top Golf, um, where they can learn to uh, hit a ball and <laughs> use the swimming pool at Emirates Golf Club and they get lunch and all that kind of thing. Um, the one that really appeals to my guys is the Green Planet um, yes. summer camp, where they sort of, I guess... They become like mini animal keepers and they get to know the animals. Um, they feed the animals. I think they spend the day learning about the animals and there's quite a conservation theme going on there as well, uh, which is fun. That um, sounds amazing. And Top Golf's always a favourite in our house as well. Yeah. Green Planet and Top Golf are Absolutely. both. Um, and then, you know, they also, I think, over the summer, get to try things that they don't usually. Absolutely. And learn new skills. So if you want to keep them active and um, and fit and not sort of let them become couch potatoes, which is obviously <laughs> um, a danger, then uh, the Hamdan Sports Complex, which I don't know if you've ever been, but it's just the most amazing facility. Um, the Do Dive team practice out of there and they can learn um, diving from like, Huge, hugely high boards really you know? yeah and they so first they practice in a gym they do trampolining and then they start diving off the boards and you know it's amazing for confidence for fitness for you know and these are things that they probably couldn't do in term time um similarly um skiing they can do indoor skiing at, at infinite ski which is this sort of like rotating conveyor belt that they ski on and and they absolutely love now i wanted to ask you about that because we've been contemplating that and i saw your kids did it the other day now if i'm not mistaken this is skiing but you don't need to put all of the warm weather gear like the cold weather gear rather on it's it's normal ambient temperature but yep. you can ski yeah they ski on a carpet that moves. It's, it's brilliant. And they ski in shorts and T-shirts. And it doesn't hurt if you fall. It's soft. And it is a really quick way to learn how to ski. And um, it, is, it does actually teach you the, the skills that you would need on the slope if yep. you were going away in winter to ski on, on real snow. They yep. can learn that in they, their shorts and T-shirts. Absolutely. And then, I mean, they've got a ski team who do go and compete Um and who do take trips out to the snow and they all all the kids that they teach can ski so yeah that's incredible yeah and so do they do is that an hour slot that you book there and your three kids were all on at once is that right yeah that's right so you do an hour but you do 15 minutes on 15 minutes off 15 minutes on 15 minutes off so it kind of gives them a break it's pretty tiring um and because you won't have that break to go back up the slope of course you're just skiing the whole time yeah skiing all the time wow yeah it's awesome, really awesome. Um, and then Mountain Extreme, which is a fantastic climbing place in Alcoz, um, that you can pay a sort of membership fee and then they can go whenever they want for however long they want. If you want them to climb for half an hour, an hour. Um, if they're under 14, they have to be accompanied by an adult, which means that um, if you're working, that's tricky. Or you can um, ask one of the instructors there to, to teach them. And they quickly get the hang of it. And again, the confidence that gives them is just amazing. And that prepares you for sort of the winter season when you can start exploring again and start going hiking and, and climbing and, and all that kind of thing. So yeah, lots and lots to do. And it's as you say, I think the challenge here is there is so much to do. There's so many brilliant options. But during the term, by the time you factored in the school day, the homework, the extracurriculars, the pickups, the drop offs, it never feels like there's enough hours in the day. No, it's a real challenge. I think our kids are super busy. And that's the other thing. They're going to be really tired. Yeah. And I think having days when they 
say they're bored is okay. I think we're so worried about filling their time and entertaining them. They have to be bored sometimes. They have to learn how to entertain themselves. Um, and, you know, they do. Like, if you leave them to their own devices, not literally, not the actual devices, <laughs> but leave them with their books and their toys and um, whatever, they actually do find ways to entertain themselves. They absolutely will. And I remember when I was a kid, was it my grandpa that used to say, um, only boring people are bored? Mine said the same, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. If you are left, you have to be more inventive, don't you, when you're left on your own to get on with it. And too often we don't do that, I guess, with yeah. kids nowadays. And I think, you know, you have to slightly turn a blind eye like when they go in the kitchen and start experimenting and mixing <laughs> jam and God knows what into jars. You're ju you just have to be a bit, you know, this is them doing their thing. They're not on a screen. Um, just leave them to as long as they then <laughs> learn how to clear up a little bit as well. Um, I wanted to tell you as well, because one of the things that we love um, very much here is going to the beach, which can seem absolutely off limits um, in the summer. But um, so I don't know Well, you do know because you're a pirate's mum too. Um, Pirate Surf Rescue are doing yeah. a, an evening session uh, three times a week for parents and kids to, oh. to get involved in. So it's for an hour, um, Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, and you can go and you can um, do lots of stuff on the on the sand and in the water. And they have amazing partnerships with, with other companies that will make it all fun and cool. And um, it's a really good way to get on the beach as well um, and, and not at a hot time of day. So that's great. That um, sounds brilliant. I'm definitely going to give that a go, actually, because I've seen you've been doing the adult classes with pirates and I've thought about it for a while. So I'm definitely going to give that a chance this summer. Uh, we're out of time, I'm afraid, but some amazing options there. And I guess if people want to follow you on Instagram, you'll be posting plenty more over the coming I weeks. I definitely will, yeah. So give Kaya a follow. What's your, follow, um, it, your it's, handle? It's um, under, underscore Kaya underscore Scott. Fantastic. Yeah. Kaya Scott, journalist and editor there with her top tips for the summer. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello and welcome back to Eye on Education on the Agenda, our final education show of the academic year because, of course, for many children across the UAE, today is the last day of term. And I'm joined by one such child who's just finished school for the last time this year, a 13-year-old teenager from Dubai who has inspired girls in the UAE and India alike to explore the world of coding and as a result has been awarded the prestigious Diana Award in recognition of her extraordinary social and humanitarian contributions that foster positive change. Kyra Anand has been bestowed with the award in memory of Princess Diana, which celebrates young individuals who go above and beyond in their efforts to create positive change in their communities. Kyra started the initiative Girls Do Code when she was just 10 years old, starting to teach girls in her community and then at an NGO in India. So, Kyra. Welcome to the studio. It's so lovely to have you in and I know you've just come straight from school. Tell me, are you feeling a bit happy today that it's the last day of term? Yes, extremely happy. <laughs> Can't wait to spend my summer holiday. And congratulations on the award. It's a hugely prestigious Thank international you. prize. Tell me, how did you feel when you found out that you had won? 
So um, the organization that I've been working with, Harmony House, they nominated me for this award and I had no idea. So in May, we found out um, that I was nominated and that I had won. So it was a surprise, but it, it, a very nice surprise. So yeah, and I'm so honored that I've received this award and I'm sure it will motivate me to do even more. So tell me a bit about Girls Do Codes and what you've been doing over there. Okay, so uh, when I was 10 years old, I had a incredible interest in technology. I used to watch Apple events. I used to see reviews of different products. And my dad always said that if I ever wanted to create products um, like this, I would need to know coding. So I was intrigued. And soon my school during online learning, they introduced us to Scratch programming. And uh, they taught us the basics. So I was interested. We made these really cool projects and I thought, why not expand my knowledge? And I self—I taught myself um, through YouTube and Udemy. And then soon I moved on to Python as well. And um, later I uh, was, we were uh, moving to secondary school and we were told that we would need laptops. And I clearly remember searching for different types of laptops and I loved MacBooks and I really wanted one. And I remember telling my friends that uh, we were discussing how we were so excited about secondary school. And I remember bringing on the topic of laptops and different types of laptops and the features and they weren't really interested. They didn't actually care for the technology side of things. And I noticed this in not only my friends, but a lot of the girls in my grade and my school. So I thought, why not share this passion that I have um, to more girls? And not only in the UAE, but I then after teaching in my community for, I think, over like, like a few months, I, uh, my mom just um, showed me uh, there was an organization in India called Harmony House, which provides education for underprivileged children. And I thought, why not teach there? Because they didn't have a computer program. So now I teach over there. I teach two kids a week. And I've dedicated my Fridays towards that for the last three years. And uh, then I thought, if I wanted to create a bigger impact and teach more students, um, I need to get more volunteers. So I created another initiative called Code to Care, which is under GDC, in my school, where I invited keen um interested people to volunteer and teach at this organization as well so now we have three volunteers including me teaching on fridays um, online to harmony house students and instead of teaching two kids a week we now teach six kids a week so wow that's incredible and of course you said to me that part of the reason that you wanted to target girls specifically is because as you said your friends didn't seem to have that same interest in technology why do you think it is that it's more traditionally associated with with boys and how quickly do you think we're going to see that change i think that i think girls are taught from a young age that they have to not be bold and, and I think that boys are taught to try different things when girls should be as well. Because I think if girls can be bold, they can make a big impact in the world. And that's why I think that if we, if like, if we take small, small steps, we can still make a difference. And when our world is going to a, a more technologically advanced um, world, we need more women in the STEM field. And yeah, so I'm starting um, small, but hopefully it'll big, become bigger. It's amazing. And you're in high school now. Tell me a bit about what you're going to be planning to study going forward, because do you see potentially a future in this for you? Yes, I definitely want to study computer science at college. I'm keen on that currently.
And what would you like to do with it eventually? With Girls Who Code, I want to uh, I vision it as a platform for girls across the world and not only in the UAE, but starting in the UAE, I would want to get more schools involved. So I would provide um, different volunteers at different schools, uh, a curriculum and a toolkit for them to teach during their uh, lunch breaks and other girls in that school like I do in my school. So um, that's one plan. But other than that, I want to expand the Code to Care initiative for more students across Dubai and reach out to more NGOs so that we have more students to teach. And yeah, so overall, I just want to expand the impact of Girls Do Code. But these are my current plans. and I definitely want to do more. Kyra, you're an absolute inspiration. Kyra Anand there, the 13-year-old recipient of this year's prestigious Diana Award. And that brings us to the end of today's show and to the end of Eye on Education for the 2022-23 school year. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Eye on Education will be back after the summer holidays.